Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Green Book Podcast. I am your host today. This is Karen Lynch, and I'm excited to talk to you all today and introduce you to an author and a speaker and a user interviewer, if you will. Steve Portugal is with us. He has recently republished a book or, or revised, I should say, a second edition of a book called Interviewing Users, How to Uncover compelling insights. And spoiler alert, I'm about to have Steve introduce himself to you. But when I read this book, I was immersed in it pretty quickly. It's not only highly readable, but loaded with tools and techniques and methods and practices that you can build into your research practice, whether you are a user interviewer, a consumer interviewer, There are applications across not just the UX space, but the consumer insights space, the market research space, if you're you're a traditionalist in that. And I'm just so excited to have Steve here to talk to us further. Steve, before I let you introduce yourself a little bit more comprehensively, I just want to say welcome to the show. Yeah. Thank you, Karen, for having me. It's great to meet you and chat with you. And uh, now I'll say a little bit about myself. Please do, yes. I'm an independent consultant in a little coastal town near the San Francisco Bay Area. I've been working on my own as a user researcher for more than 20 years. I'm really big into qualitative contextual research and you know, finding out stuff that we don't know, that we don't know about people and figuring out how companies can act on that. And as you kind of pointed out, I also write and speak. So I I like to teach organizations about research and, you know, just sort of advocate for it in general, but also have an active practice myself in, as you said, interviewing users. Yeah. That comes out in the book also, because there you, you actually mentioned, I'm going to keep giving spoiler alerts for this book, but you mentioned some of the methods, the contextual methods in this book, and I was devouring it for the research geek side of me that loves a good kind of projective exercise or, you know, exercise where you can, you know, bring in some stimuli to get people to stop thinking really literally, but kind of give them a moment to, to think about things differently or metaphorically and, and bring in creative tools and techniques. So those of you who know me know that I love all of those kind of activities that you can bring into qualitative research in general. So there's those great applications in here too. But but I'm getting it way ahead of myself. So first, let's take a step back, Steve. You talked about kind of what you're currently doing now. Give us a little bit of an intro into how you got to this place, your career journey, if you will. Sure. And it does go back to sort of previous eras. Like I like how you were describing the traditionalist version of market research. And right, we we sort of work in shifting sands over the decades. So, you know, I came up in the era before we had UX, before there was a web, which you know, definitely ages me a certain amount. And I came out of a, an academic discipline. Well, that sounds so, I mean, it sounds so smart when they say that. <laughs> I have a, I got a degree in human computer interaction, which was again, before the web, but you know, that was sort of uh, looking at from the computer science point of view, 
how do people do stuff? We didn't talk about design. We certainly didn't talk about UX. We didn't really talk about user research. We didn't really talk about usability testing, which were sort of earlier, like the next era, we had those as disciplines or terms or processes or titles. Um, and I came out of graduate school with like, you know, a degree, but not, there's no industry for me to go into yet. And I really didn't have a set of applicable tools. So I, I definitely struggled to find a place to take me in, but I found this industrial design consultancy. Oh, another sort of term that we hear less of, but that was, you know, if you go back to now, we're talking like mid nineties design meant industrial design, which meant sort of form giving or like physical products. And they were thinking about this word innovation, which was, again, if you go back to that era, a hot word in product development. These are all sort of jargony terms. We talked about the front end of innovation and the fuzzy front end and, you know, all this sort of stuff that dominated sort of the business language around what we all do, but, you know, we were situated differently. And they were trying to figure out, like, what are other ways that we could learn about people and define what products could be? and uh, or services and um i kind of had an apprenticeship an informal apprenticeship where no one knew what the answer was we didn't have a process it wasn't an established discipline like when you hear apprenticeship so we were figuring out what does a project look like like how do you conduct research how do you explain it to how do you charge for it how do you analyze it i mean all that stuff that i think is sort of more baked in our discipline now like maybe for sure in academia they knew this in social science but in at least my corner of the professional world, we didn't. And so we got to figure it out, you know, for better or worse, you kind of learn as you go and make mistakes and improve your processes. But that's kind of where I started. Uh, I worked at that agency for a number of years and started my own practice in 2001 and have been, yeah, learning and making mistakes and teaching and writing. And that's also how you, well, how I I guess, sort of hone the practice. You do it, you talk about it, you tell other people how to do it. You keep making mistakes and learning and, and sort of seeing how other people do and don't do things that you think they should do. So I've been, yeah, lucky to work with companies and do interesting projects and teach interesting teams and, and you know, have that experience over many years, right? It's a long time. So that I think if you stick around, that's also one kind of key to to reaching a certain level. So I just I have I have the years and the, and that I've been working on this and trying to keep trying to figure it out more and more. Yeah, you're <laughs> you're not alone with the years, right? So I remember quite specifically in the early 2000s. So I my career launched a few years ahead of yours, which is actually a place of pride for me because I I have seen some of those changes that we're talking about here, and I remembered when. I think it was my husband who at the time was in the industry also shared with me about the like a usability group in Connecticut, CT UX or UX CT or something like that, and said, you should go. This would be really relevant for you. And I remember going to it and thinking, wait, they're talking about qualitative research. I do this. I do this work. But it didn't have that label on it. And then there were even clients of mine that had web-based products, a lot of e-commerce sites and things like that. And they're trying to optimize their sites and talk to you users of their sites, but it wasn't quite called UX yet. It was all of this, this, this period of time where we all had a little bit, we on the sort of qualitative research side had a little bit of cognitive dissonance about like, wait, is it a separate field? Is it the same field? Are we 
sharing skills or are we learning new skills? So I remember that time. So it's interesting that you kind of came at it through that side of things and I had come at it through the other side and here we are today talking. So it's neat and interesting. And I think that some of that dissonance still exists for people. Have you found that? Yeah, I think sometimes they call it the definition wars. Like it still persists. I think the, um, right, you have, you know, terms like discovery that maybe come from product management. I'm a little over my skis here, but, you know, you have other people doing research with different titles and maybe they don't call that thing research. They might call it discovery or they might think that what they do is research and don't know why there are people whose titles are researchers. So I think the, yeah, it's same as it ever was, right? It's, it's, so if, if you didn't go, you know, if you're listening and you're like, why are Stephen Karen talking about the olden days? Like it's, <laughs> it's still happening. It's just it's a still, different yeah. set of things to be cognitively dissonant about. Yeah. As, you know, cause it's a discipline. It's a bunch of disciplines. It's also a process or a practice or a set of tools that, you know, many people can use. So I think we're, we are, I don't know, I'm inconsistent. And I think uh, that suits me, but it does create confusion for people as they're trying to find their place or who should they be working with or who should they be learning from, you know? So uh, it, I don't know, I think you're, you're trying to build bridges and kind of bring different disciplines together and give everybody a voice in that. I may be projecting some uh, lofty aspirations <laughs> oh, on you, but- hundred percent, but certainly Ed- at Greenbook and in the role that I'm in, I'm trying to make sure that everybody recognizes that there's there are practices that we can share. There are practices that make us unique. There are methods that we can borrow from and adapt and make our own to get the work done, right? And it's all about one of the things I want to talk to you about on this call. It's, it's all about using research and talking to the users or consumers of a product or a service, whether it's a, you know, a tech product or a virtual product, you know, whatever it may be, or something tangible that you consume to answer business questions. And one of the things that I think researchers find themselves challenged with is translating the business question or the business challenge into a research question. And there's a great section on your in your book pretty early on that that digs into that is how is the business challenge addressed with the research question? Like what is actually the research question at hand that could get some insight into a business challenge? And then how do you execute research accordingly? So it's it's actually going very much into detail about how all the pieces fit together. So talk to me about how you had even that thought and realization that that is a necessary part of this book. Yeah. And I think even, you know, asking people to see that these are different things. You know, I think for me, it comes from years and years of taking requests or taking requests makes me sound like I'm a, I'm playing in a lounge or something <laughs> like that. You know, uh, I'm a, I'm a consultant. So I get into conversations with people and they have something in mind that they have thought through a certain amount and maybe not more. And sort of what it takes to get to, I mean, what it takes to get to a project, like how do we go from that initial conversation to starting to do some research, but then even seeing, um, and I guess here's my spoiler alert, right? The, the, the stuff that you do at the beginning to, to set up the research project has a big impact at the end when you share something, you know, that's a bad place for surprises of, oh, I thought we were going to learn about this. I thought we were going to do this. I thought this was our question. And so, yeah, I, 
I mean, talk about learning from mistakes. I've been bit at the end and anyone that does this gets bit at the end at some point and you change sort of what you do up front. And I think for me, and I hope I'm not jumping ahead here, but I think for me, the difference between these things is the business challenge is about us, the organization. I think this is how you can distinguish it, right? We, as an organization, we make a thing, we're publishing a thing, we're changing a thing, we want to innovate in this thing. It's all about what our objectives or pressures are. We're losing space to a competitor. Our technology is being sunsetted. There's something that's happening for us. And we have to take some action. Or we don't have to. We might want to take some action in response to that. And we don't know what action to take. So that's the business challenge. The research question is, what do we have to learn in order to do that? And so the research question faces outward, like, what do we have to learn from people who might choose, use, receive the output of whatever the world out there is? So there's an inside and an outside. And I think, you know, what I have from, you know, the experience of talking to people about potential projects is they frame their initiative or their objective or just why they're calling me. It's all over the map. And as you're kind of saying, right, that once you understand the research question, you have to select an approach to the research. People will contact me. And I think anyone is a researcher has this eventually. They'll contact me and say, we want to do method X. We want to do some ride alongs with pet owners as they go to dog food stores. And so, you know, sometimes people start with the method. And so it's, I think it, it's incumbent on any of us that are planning research to say, well, you know, to go back up. I think it's a hierarchy, right? So your method is to do this ride along. What is it that you expect to learn from doing that ride along? Oh, we want to learn, you know, how people make uh, decisions at the shelf. Well, why do you want to learn that? Well, we are facing increasing competition from, I don't know, online shopping. Again, I'm just making this up from online shopping. And so our, you know, decision process needs to be kind of refined. It's just, I think it's a lot, the researcher has to ask why. The researcher, you know, the project manager, whoever's kind of going to go out and figure out how to do this work needs to understand why. And, you know, this is not a criticism of people that think they need research. Like they don't know this model. They don't you know. I want, you know, I want to get a quote for someone to go do some ride alongs with pet owners. That may seem like a perfectly reasonable way to start. And so when you ask, well, what is it you want to learn? You're not being difficult. Like you're trying to help. So, oh, we want to learn this and this thing. Okay, well, you know, do you already have some data about this? We don't have to do some research, or maybe this is the approach that would be the most effective, or you're going to get an answer, but you won't be able to use it this way. So what's your objective? You want to unpack all of the what's behind this. And I think it's fine that people don't know. They wouldn't have put that in a brief because they don't know. And they may not be able to give you like a, an answer right away. Oh, it's for this reason. They might want to think about it. So you, I think this positions us from kind of order takers or kind of deliverer of insights to a strategic partner that makes sure that the research that we do go and do is aimed at something that the business really needs that wants to pay for, invest in and make use of. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree a hundred percent. And that's how I practiced when I was executing research as well. And I think that it, it became critically important in, in lots of the trainings that I did also at the end of a project, when you're trying to synthesize all of that, all the information that you get, like if you just stay hyper-focused on 
what those research questions are and what that business challenge was, then suddenly you know how to sift through all that information, right? There's a lot in many of the research efforts that we take on that just becomes extraneous information that might be great to mine in the future. But if we need to do the best job that we can do on the current project that we're on, we need to stay hyper-focused on you know, business challenges and research questions. So we could probably talk a lot about that, but I, I want to take another step back real quick and just say, talk to us about this book in general. Like why the need for this book in the first place and then why the need to revamp it for the second edition? Yeah, I think in 2013, there was not a lot of books about the practice of, you know, of interviewing users, specifically like research, we could keep laddering up and laddering up, but, you know, UX research, design research, user research, you know, consumer research, qualitative, there were a few handbooks. I think there were some kind of classics that maybe came from other disciplines. I think probably somebody probably has something from journalism that they love and they were maybe more social science based things, but there wasn't a lot of material versus now. I think there's a lot of great books and a lot of it's, that follows the distribution. There's there's many books, and so you have a lot of great ones. You have a lot of you know okay ones, but the field has matured over ten years. So ten years ago, it was something we didn't have and that we needed. And I was kind of in a in a place to be that person to kind of write that book. Ten years has gone by, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, for personally, for me, as you know, someone who wrote this book, and it's it's. It's a big project to take on, and it's been very meaningful for me, I think, to have that out in the world. But 10 years is like a really interesting anniversary. And I was really thinking like, well, how am I going to observe this? How will I commemorate this or talk about, you know, in a reflective way? The book is not a reflection on 10 years. I think we're doing that in this conversation. But for me, that's that that was something. And, you know, I had already, I'd already been approached by the publisher, uh, Rosenfeld Media, like, do you want to do a second edition, like a year before? I'm like, no, why would I ever do that? <laughs> that, you know, I just, I just shot it down and then came back to it and like, oh, this is exactly what I should do. And I did this little exercise of without opening the book, because it's not like I read a book that I wrote, you know, nine years ago that I read it. It's just it's sort of, I have all the stuff that I think about and talk about and that I practice. But I did this little exercise without even opening the book. What topics do I think are new that have changed or that I left out that I'd want to talk about? And so just kind of top of mind, I came up with six or seven. And, you know, don't ask me what they were because that was sort of the outset of the process. But that was sort of proof to me that like, oh, I do have more to say. Things have changed. I, I feel differently about this kind of stuff. And so that was like a good impetus. And, um, you know, you work with an editor kind of through the process and the editor was very sensitive to like, oh, this is an old example. You're talking about things that don't, you know, there's, I think there's a, there was a reference to Skype in the original edition as being how we would do like remote research, video research. And, you know, you could sort of see, oh yeah, these are old examples. It sort of, it dates the book. Even if the principle is true, we're talking about Skype. And so it feels a little dusty. I didn't really see that till I got into it. And it's like, oh, there's a lot of ways that we can refresh this. But there are also, and I'm jumping ahead, sorry. There are also things that change, like our relationship to money. And this is a very simple tactical thing. In the olden days, like in how I wrote about it in 2013, it was a, a point of pride for me to like give people cash at the end of an interview. 
as you know, their honorarium or their incentive for participating. Because cash is like, you don't have to take it to the bank. You don't have to do anything with it. You can just go start using it. And in fact, and this is almost embarrassing, like I like to, if it was $100, I like to give people 100 Like that felt like symbolically really like, here you go. And I think over time, like now that's a terrible idea and everyone is rolling their eyes. Like, what do you do? Do you remember we traveled with all that cash? Right. We traveled just for the people listening that don't have that. We, if we, (laughs) we traveled with, you know, I don't even know how much, it's embarrassing to think about now how many hundred dollar bills we might've had on our persons or $50 bills that we might've had on our persons at all times. Like it was our responsibility to deliver that money to the people we were doing the work with. I mean, sometimes we could bring a check to facility and they would spot us the cash, but But yeah, cash anyway. is the thing, right? And cash, cash isn't the thing, right? Why would you give exactly. anybody cash? What are they going to do with it? And that's been the case for a long time, but that's something where, oh, 10 years come, you know, that was one of the first yeah. things I thought, well, if I ever do another version of this book, I've got to change that because it's, it's almost embarrassing how it was so true then and it's just so untrue now. And so, you know, you got to change that guidance to reflect what the current practice is. Yeah. And, and one of the things you, you write about, and I know we kind of pointed this out, is that things have changed in our world, like that one, for example. The techniques maybe haven't changed too much. We haven't really evolved that much, but the industry has, right? The focus on research technology and research operations and the shift in, yes, behavior out there and even some of the language. So are there any other examples of how the kind of changes in the way we practice the work that we've practiced are kind of in parallel to changes in the world? I mean, the the biggest one is remote user research or remote any kind of research. You know, we had a pandemic it changed everything about the world. It changed sort of how people work together and, you know, keep in touch with their families and their friends and everything obviously changed in a really dramatic way. And um, it's not like we didn't have remote research, you know, beforehand. And I think I mentioned this in the book. There's a, there's a, you know, one of the classic texts about remote research is by Nate Bolt. And he published that in 2010. Um, you know, and I don't think that everything in there is still true. Like the technology has changed. It was pre-Zoom and so on, but it's been a part of the the field for a long time now, but it became the default for a number of years. And I think we're much more sophisticated in how we talk about it because if work took place over Zoom, then the challenges of using Zoom uh, became part of the fabric of work and the fabric of everyday lives. And so we you know, you started seeing articles about, um, you know, Zoom fatigue and how do you counteract that? And like, you know, things like maybe make the faces smaller because uh, there's, I think, some work at Stanford. It's kind of evolutionarily, we're not well suited to look at, to make eye contact this long Mm. or to have like a big face right in front of us kind of trigger some fight or flight stuff. And so there are sort of bad meeting hygiene things that, some people have access to guidance to say, like, maybe we should do do this a little differently that apply to remote research that we didn't have, I think, the insight in kind of our work culture pre, you know, lockdown and pandemic and remote research. So I think we're better at doing remote research just from a more awareness of what it demands from us. You know, that's my idealistic kind of view of it. 
Uh, and certainly the technology to support remote work has in, improved. And so that has kind of pulled remote research along with it. So yeah, I think that's sort of a societal change, a systemic change, a work change that has kind of impacted us. It's a great example. It really is a, it's a great example. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you kind of think back to even the evolution of online interviews or online research, and you think about how people weren't comfortable with certain or some people weren't necessarily comfortable doing that. And then, you know, 2020 was as our great disruptor, like, oh yeah, we do this now. And we're all pretty comfortable with it. But now we have to really think, you know, yes, we'd like to be in person. Yes. We'd like to, to, you know, get and do our ethnographies or our ride alongs and, and things like that, because we really need to be in person with people as much as we can and, and really see their usage in real time. But also to think about that, what's happening as we adapt to a new reality of this video interaction. So it's really interesting stuff. And it would be interesting to to just kind of track that over time too, just in general, just, you know, see how we all do and come back to this conversation in a couple of years. And, you know, we'll see our our interface is completely different than it was this year, right? Because we've learned from that and now we're all sitting way, way back. So everybody can see our backgrounds a little bit differently. It'll be interesting to watch that play out. Anyway, super cool. Thank you. Let, let's talk about some of the things you did add to the book other than, you know, what we've talked about already. I know that there's some new chapters that you did add. I know you did your brainstorming. What made it into the final cut? Yeah. I mean, I think some things make new chapters and some things are like at a sentence level or even at just like a, you know, a paragraph. So yeah, you can rewrite the incentive thing. That's not a new chapter, but, and you mentioned research operations. So that you know, there was, there was the way that I talk about logistics has changed and it's not just about research operations. I think it's the maturity of the field. If you go back 10 years, you know, things like things in the practice, like, do we get a signed release from a participant? I mean, I think I was writing 10 years ago, you should probably get a signed release, which tells you how sort of loosey goosey, how loosey goosey the world was. And even my advice was like, it's a good idea. And I, I had somebody from an operations perspective, look at that draft chapter and they're like, their head kind of exploded. They're like, it's not a good idea. It's a requirement. You know, we have, you know, legal issues, compliance issues, you know, for any, anything global, international, it, it comes really, really important. So the sophistication of the practice of research and issues around data privacy, which, you know, we're seeing maybe as ethical issues, like, and I don't, that doesn't, I don't mean that to sound pejorative. Like this is a good thing to do because we have to care about people and take care of them. And in fact, that discussion has advanced and I make a reference to, I think it's the uh, ethical, the ethical researchers checklist in the book, which, you know, starts to ask questions like, should we even be doing this research and how do we protect people from harm? And so, you know, 10 years ago, we were like, we should probably, you know, I'm the person saying we should get a release. And the release might talk about, you know, the even tax, you know, for tax purposes, documenting that the money exchange took place that doesn't make somebody an employee. Like those are some sense of how to protect the company, but it's gotten much more robust. I think inside organizations, the legal department and the researchers work together. I know many people that like they have someone from legal that supports them as opposed to if you go back, it's like, well, should we even make legal aware of what we're doing because they might stop us? So there was a adversarial relationship. And I think now in the best scenario, and I'm sure this isn't true for everyone, but it's a collaborative thing 
legal's job should be to how do we empower this research to take place in a way that you know matches our compliance for privacy and tracing information about how money is spent and you know all that stuff and so that's logistics not operations but operations is you know how do we create the conditions for the company to be able to do research all the aspects how do we it's not it's not finding participants for people doing research it's how do we create infrastructure that supports an ongoing sustained finding of participants so finding participants uh, being able to put them through a legally compliant consent process that we can document and save and archive that how do we archive the material from from research and make it available so that it supports future decision making you know all the stuff that has to be put in place for a mature user research practice is is one of the objectives of research operations and so right we didn't even know if you go back what that would look like and if we were trying to address it it was maybe in a more ad hoc way or it fell to the researcher so someone sort of taking on from an operations perspective we're going to build this and we're going to make it sustainable and we're going to address all sorts of of things that that make the organization ready to do research is a big shift and that that reflects the maturity of the field uh, and changes in you know regulatory stuff that have happened in, in 10 years that sort of necessitated a growth in the field so the the discussion around sort of the, the logistics i think has has grown up a lot and you know you don't need a research operations team but you do need to be legally compliant and you need a way to you know archive your material so it's reusable so operations sort of says we're going to own the building of this but what this is i think has kind of expanded and, and grown over over time and i try to not being an ops person myself i've tried to sort of reflect as best I can, you know, what that looks like. So wherever you're coming from, you can, you know, make some progress along that line. Well, you did it well. I mean, there's even some some frameworks here for creating a knowledge management platform for yourself, you know, how to have a database of your own research. So excellent applications for a smaller shop that might not have access to platforms and tools, but here's a way you can kind of create your own hub, knowledge hub. You did a very a good job, solid job, an important job of also providing different, you know, here are some forms. You gave structure to the field is what you did. You know, here's some forms that you can look at for, you know, debriefing your interviews after you conduct them. Here's some kind of like, I don't want to call them templates, but here's the framework that you can do for creating your discussion guide. Here's here's some tools you can lose, use to synthesize your data. So you were, you've given some very tangible tools in this book for anybody who is really trying soup to nuts to go off on their own for the first time or just get to know the field that maybe they've been hired in. Really practical, tangible things that researchers can borrow from. I mean, again, having been in the field for a long time, some of this was you know, some of this was a part of my practice, but I'm like, you know what? That's a great debrief form. That one really stood out to me, for example, interview debrief form, where it's not just take notes on what you just experienced, but it's prompting your brain to think through what it means. So kudos to you on that. Is that just a practice of yours or did something kind of stimulate that thought that you might want to include those? Well, you know, there's this interesting part of research where 
it's collaborative and facilitative. I mean, it's not just what, you know, I as the researcher or me as part of the research team learns. It's, you know, the people that we're working with. And so I have an obligation to them. Boy, that sounds like, it sounds very more moralistic than I mean. Like I can do a better job if I can help them learn something and take something away. But if I also, if I hear what they're taking away, especially I'm, you know, I'm not the domain expert. I, and I work as a consultant. So I come into an area that somebody else inhabits. Uh, and so they're going to always see things in the research that I won't see. It's really helpful for me to understand what didn't they hear that person say? Like if there's a gap in what they took away, then I now know I need to kind of emphasize that because it's, and there's a, there's a takeaway that's obvious to me that isn't to them. So that needs to be surfaced as I share back so that I can get that out, that out of a debrief. And when I hear what they heard and what surprises them, I understand you know, how they're framing the world, what's relevant information. Like I'm getting this indirect feedback. So, you know, I, uh, like I, it's not my natural way of being to have a template for an activity. I'd rather just chat. And sometimes that suits me well. And sometimes I need to put a little more structure in it. So I think, you know, writing up a debriefing guide, like, I think there's having something formal, like a template or a tool you can use sort of reminds me that this is an important part of the process. I need to make time for it and mental space for it. And I need to tell the people I'm collaborating with that they should leave time for it. And guess what? This is a serious activity. I don't, I'm not just trying to like get coffee with you. And hey, what did you think? I've got a document here. So there's a little bit of a, a theater, and I don't mean that in an unkind way, but there's a little bit of a, you know, a formality to it that reminds me to take it seriously and that shows my collaborators that I, that I value what they have to say and that I, you know, I've got some format for that. I love a good worksheet. I'm just sitting here just thinking like, I love that framing. I think for a million qualitative researchers out there who are frequently struggling to debrief at the end of a series of focus groups, for example, stepping into that world a minute, you know, just sometimes clients are like, I'm just too tired to do this. It's just, it feels like they can easily dismiss it, you know, but boy, let's, let's put a worksheet in there and everything changes just a little bit because you are collecting their information because it matters. What's in their brain really does matter. It's incredibly important. So lots of applications to borrow from. One thing, I want to be mindful of time, but I do want to ask you about this because it's a pretty important facet of the book, in my opinion. You know, you did really bring home the importance of not just kind of analyzing and synthesizing the data, but driving impact across the organization. So talk to me a little bit about that ad and what you were seeing and why that felt important to include in this edition. You know, I think it's the million dollar question or the number one question that sometimes frustrates me. I mean, I'll just be a little gripey here. You know, as I go out and talk to people and, you know, maybe I'm teaching a workshop and, and so on. And I'm, you know, like follow-up questions, for example, like one of the most important things in a research interview is asking follow-up questions. And so I might teach people, like we could do a whole session on follow-up questions and how to do them and practice doing them. And people are like, okay, I get it. And then we get to discussion and then people say, well, this is great, but how do I get people to uh, let me do interviews? Or how do I get people to act on interviews? Like it's the, it's the question that's always behind the question. So you, I, I, I want to talk about technique because it's really important to hone the craft, but I have to recognize like 
there are sort of systemic challenges that limit the use of any technique. And then so, you know, I think it's, it is sort of the number one topic that I think when researchers get together, they wring their hands about it. I saw like a social media thread from a workshop, from a, a panel that was held a few years ago. And people were saying things like, my research doesn't have value unless someone acts on it. And I feel really sad when I see that actually. I understand where that comes from because you do all this interesting research and you know, you don't you can't get anybody's time or they don't want to act on it or they it it doesn't sufficiently change somebody's mind about something. And I, you know, I feel like, you know, the research is good and there's other things that have to happen as well, but I don't think it has no value. And sometimes we can't see the impact. Sometimes the impact happens later on or somebody, people don't always attribute, you know, Karen, you told me that people think X. And so I made decision Y. Like that's not how minds change and people's lives change. And they're going to do something down the road where you're not there that they will not even consciously attribute to a fact that you presented them, but to kind of the dynamic and the relationship you, you have with them. So I want to reframe it so people feel positive about it, but also you know, how do we give people tools for success? It is uphill. Like we're talking about culture change. We're talking about changing minds, changing beliefs. And I've been, you know, shot down so many times to try to get a little better at it. So I think it's really important and it's on people's minds. So I don't know, I guess I'm kind of answering why is this important? I don't know if that's the thrust of your question or not. <laughs> well, the, you're answering why it's important, which is why it was important enough to include in the book. So I appreciate that very, very much. Yeah, uh, again, really, really great stuff in this book. So I want to uh, bring us to a close and and ask two things. First, kind of what's next for you? What's kind of on the horizon? Are you doing another one of these books? And then... Uh, and then kind of after that, the, the second question in my question series is how can people learn a little bit more and find out more about this book or get one into their hands? So so let's take those one at a time. What's next for you? What's on the horizon? You know, I mean, I'm self-employed. My priority is always my consulting work and working with clients. Um, so we'll sort of see how that shakes out. I think writing a book about the practice I think I'm hoping will, you know, help me continue to do training and kind of helping teams build better practices uh, because, hey, I have a new book about doing that. I have my own podcast called uh, Dollars to Donuts. It's a podcast about leadership in user research, which is also something that's changed over 10 years. There were no people running teams of researchers if you went back, or there were few. I think it's now a discipline and it, it, it impacts everything that we're talking about, like uh, certainly around impact. When you have a peer, it changes the dynamic. That podcast is, you know, I don't have the, the steady commitment to it that I, you know, I think people like you do. So it comes in and out, but I'm eager to, and so I'm sort of, you know, declaring my intent. I'm sort of staging that. I want to start those conversations again. And, you know, I learn a lot from those. I think there's material that will come out of those podcasts that, will find his way into something. I don't know what that is, but yeah. So there's, I think there's a hand, there's like 30, 35 episodes that are, you know, up for over the last few years and then, you know, more to come, I guess, as I'm declaring that is up for me next to get your hands on this book, interviewing users, second edition, the best place to buy it is from the publisher Rosenfeld media, you know, support small businesses. If you buy a, 
print copy, you get a digital copy included. So they do things like that. And for listeners of this podcast, I'm going to just sound really, uh, really hosty. For listeners of this podcast, you can use the uh, discount code GREENBOOK, the name of the podcast, to get a 20% discount if you buy through the, the publisher Rosenfeld Media. If you want to find me, my website is my last name, Portugal, Portugal.com. You know, I post things there. I'll post this when it comes out and other stuff that I'm doing. You can read about, read about me and find stuff about the book. But I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. And so I invite people to find me on there and connect. And yeah, that way I can learn what other people are up to as well and connect with them. That's great. Well, thank you for that discount code and for for labeling it Green Book. We appreciate that. And I know our audience will as well. I, I love the idea. Now, now I'm just really curious about the digital version also, because I'm like, ooh, are some of those sort of forms that we talked about available for download? That'd be pretty sweet. I think any of the forms are footnoted in the book. So there's there's URLs, I think, for all those forms that are in the print edition, but you could just click on it if you're in the digital edition and you should be able to get that form. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That's a pretty sweet feature. The book that I have is just the hard copy. I don't have the digital version there. So now I'm going to be like, oh, that's really pretty cool. Anyway, thank you so much for being on this show. I really appreciate you, Steve, and the time and, and the fact that you kind of put this book out there into the world. I think it's important and I'm grateful for the work you did. Thanks for a really lovely conversation. It was nice to meet you and chat with you. It was so nice to meet you too. And we probably could talk a long time, but I have to I have to watch the clock before our producer, Natalie, who I appreciate every single time she uh, she puts these into place for us. She will be saying, Karen, 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 you just have to talk a little less. Anyway, thank you, Natalie, for all you do to support this show. Thank you to our editor, Big Bad Audio. We appreciate how well you make us sound episode after episode. And of course, all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time on another episode of the Green Book Podcast. Join Green Book for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transforming insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.